Well, hello, everybody. This is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have really, this one is a pleasure. I have Bonnie St. John joining me today. At age five, Bonnie had her right leg amputated. At the age of 19, she became the first African-American to win medals at the 1984 Winter Paralympics in Innsbruck, Austria. In recognition of this historic achievement, Bonnie was quoted on millions of Starbucks coffee cups and was honored with her portrait in the main hall of Trinity College at Oxford as a distinguished alumna. In addition to her success as a Paralympic athlete, she is a best-selling author of seven books, including her latest work, Michael, Micro Resilience, Minor Shifts for Major Boosts in Focus, Drive, and Energy. Bonnie is also a leadership consultant for Fortune 500 companies and is the CEO of the Blue Circle Leadership Institute and works with women in senior positions on how to find their voice and max their contribution within the company, a task which many women find hard to do. And if that isn't enough, Bonnie was appointed by President Clinton as a director for human capital issues on the White House National Economic Council and represented the U.S. as a member of President Obama's official delegation to the 2010 Paralympic Winter Games in Vancouver and the 2016 Paralympic Summer Games in Rio de Janeiro. I'll wrap up her introduction with this quote from NBC Nightly News, which basically says, Bonnie is one of the five most inspiring women in America. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tiffany. That is embarrassing to have you read all that out. (laughs) I know, right? And every time I do it, right, I'm always like, I don't ever like it when people do it for me. But, you know, it's it's, uh, such an amazing um, uh, bio. But more importantly, you know, we met in in New York and when I, I didn't. I didn't know much about you. And then I was, I was in like, once I heard the story, I'm like, I have to have you on my, I have to have you on my podcast. So I'm, I'm just thrilled to share with everyone um, what a colorful story you have that we're going to talk about today. That, that intro sounds so Forrest Gump to me now too. You know, I started out with a brace on my leg, you know, and a poor black child and, you know, run Bonnie run. And then I've met, I've met presidents and, and, you know, having my picture in the portrait in Oxford, that's just crazy. It's, I'm very blessed. I, I, right. I, I agree. When people read mine, it's, it, you just sort of, it's, a, it's difficult to hold your head up high. Cause then it's like, Oh yeah, of course. And then you kind of put your head down low and then you're like, Oh, well, but I should be really proud of it. So it's this, uh, it's this very interesting thing, but uh, you know, before we get into all this, you know, as, as you know, I'm, I'm, you know, what's next has become famous for its bullish and bearish. So I can't let you off the hook. Otherwise people are going to say, Hey, how come she? How come Bonnie didn't have to do that? So we're going to have to start with the bullish and bearish. And and bullish is you're really for it. Bearish is you're against it. And as you know, no one seems to answer to one or the other. They, <laughs> they give me this middle of the road, but we will do our best to get just bullish and bearish. All right, you ready? I'm ready. All right. Open First the one. market. <laughs> All right. First one. Robots will have their own Olympic games. Okay, you got the the tilt head, like, huh? Um, (sighs) Robots will have their own Olympic Games. Um, I mean, maybe they do already. Maybe they're already competing against each other, and we don't know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
I like that answer. Let's go with that. Well, where where it goes where it goes for me too is Oscar Pistorius. There was a whole controversy over whether he could compete because he had artificial feet, and they were saying it was an advantage. And of course, if it was an advantage, you'd have all people with artificial feet running, right? So um, I think maybe the more interesting issue is. At what point do people that are a mixture of robot and human get to compete? And, and how do we evaluate that? And I, I think, so I'm bullish on cyborgs. <laughs> I'm I'll bullish. take it. I'm bullish, on the, I'm bullish on the Cyborg Olympics. There that, we go. Okay. okay. I, you know, I think that that's going to be the title of this podcast is going to be, you know, the Cyborg Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> Being a cyborg myself, I yes. like that. All right. Okay. The next one. AI and machine learning will help executives be better leaders. Oh, I'm very bullish on that. I'm I'm off the charts bullish. Say it again. AI and machine learning will help executives be better leaders. I mean, if it doesn't, we're not good leaders. If we're good leaders, we need to use all the resources we have. And AI is just a way of processing information uh, in more complex ways. We met at the Cognizant Conference in New York City, though, and one of the things they brought up was that AI is still biased, that AI is not neutral. It doesn't um, uh, think for you. Uh, It only thinks as well as you program it. So it's an augmentation of your brain. It's an extension of your brain, but you can't uh, you know, it only does it as well as you trained it to do, but it can, it can take your training and do that faster. <laughs> so if it's stupid training, it's stupid faster. But, um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but it, yeah. But it, so, so it has pitfalls, I guess is what I'm saying, but I'm very bullish. I, I think you, you can, you know, great leaders should use every resource they have. Fair enough. All right. The last one, this one's, you know, we have to start it out a little fun and a little soft. So, uh, this one is, um, I saw in in one of your Twitter feeds, uh, one of the posts that you had shared, and it was napping makes you more productive. Bullish or bearish? (laughs) Bullish, completely. And it's my tweet. So, Yeah, yeah, micro resilience, that really gets into the work we did in the micro resilience research on, you know, small hacks that can really improve your focus, drive and energy. And so not everybody naps in the same way or at the same time, but the concept of small recoveries during the day is is what I'm all about. That's center line for me. Yeah, it, interesting. Uh, I had Dan Pink on on the podcast, and he and he wrote his book When. But one of his you know things that he sort of highlighted in that was to have a shot of espresso, then take a nap, then wake up, and you're super productive. And I was like, okay, like I had to process that. Right, take a shot of espresso, then take a nap then wake up because when you wake up, you know, a short nap, the espresso will have hit your body and boom, you hit up refreshed and you've got that little burst. And I was like, I never would have put those two things together, but okay. So you're trying to, you're trying to sleep during the time that it takes for the espresso to hit your system. That's hilarious. (laughs) I was like, I got to try it. Now I'm curious. I got to try it. You got to try it. And so, and come back and then you're going to come back on. I'll see you like the next time I see you, you're going to be like, oh my God, this has been the best act ever. So I love Dan Pink, by the way. He's uh, he's uh, we we did some podcasts together too. But anyway, yeah. Great. So so I want to I want to dive into this a little bit, especially you know now that you've said it was really from the micro resilience. But you know I find uh, when when people will ask you know hey Tiffany what what do you think powers your drive and you know why do you think you know you're so you know committed and you work so hard at what you do and and I always lean back on the fact 
while I wish I had, as we and we, you and I talked about when I first met you, I wish I had an Olympic you know, medal in any shot or even had the opportunity to show up. But I think a lot of the uh, of my personal traits that have served me really well have come through those that I learned in my athletic career. Um, you know, albeit, you know, not the Olympics, it doesn't matter the discipline that I've learned. And, and you shared an amazing story uh, when um, you first realized that, <laughs> uh, you know, a poor black girl from the wrong tracks with one leg, <laughs> that's her quote, not mine. So just to make sure no one goes, I can't believe you said that. I didn't say it. <laughs> she said it. I'm repeating it. Um, made it to the Olympics. And you were talking about that coach that really spent time with you and taught you so many things. I'd love for you to share that story. Uh, Warren Witherell, about Warren Witherell? Yes. So um, he's an amazing human being. I mean, and really more than a coach, too. He, um, I got a full scholarship to go to Burke Mountain Academy. And... Uh, it's a ski training school for, you know, super athletes that, that want to be in the Olympics. It's in Vermont. I lived in San Diego, you know, and I, as you said, I was the poor black child trying to be a ski racer on the weekends. And so I, I you know, applied to be in the school and I couldn't raise the money. I tried, I failed. And he gave me a full scholarship to come. Now there were no other black people. There were no other one-legged people there. And uh, it, it was a crazy idea. And on the first day of school, I broke my ankle, my only ankle. <laughs> <laughs> six weeks later, I'm, I'm just about to get out of the cast, or I got out of the cast and I'm thinking, now I can run across the soccer field and I break my artificial leg in half. I sent it back to LA where it was made. It gets lost in the mail for three weeks. It's, it's a crazy story. And I, I was having such a hard time. I thought Warren Withrow would just send me home, you know, and say, you don't have a leg left to stand on. <laughs> Or I thought my mother would call and say, you know, you're trying to kill my daughter, you know, but no responsible adult made me go home. And so I stayed and I was able to become a champion. Fast forward 20 years, Warren Witherell asks me to come back and speak at a graduation. But this is in Colorado. So he's at a school and headmaster of a school in Colorado. So 20 years later, I, I wanted to know different things from Warren. When I was 17, how do I wax my skis? But when I was, you know, 20 years later, I wanted to know how did you build champions? And we talked for hours, but the one thing that I really took away from that is he said, I never built champions one at a time. I built communities of champions because you can only push one person so far. But when you get a group of people sharing best practices, cheering for each other's success and picking each other up when they fall down, everybody goes further. And literally, Burke Mountain Academy was the first school of its type and helped Americans get back on track in uh, Olympic alpine skiing in the Olympics. So literally everybody goes further. Yeah. And I think that you highlight something great. I mean, you know, I think in many ways, um, sports taught me how to participate on a team, uh, respect other players, like sit on the bench and still cheer, you know, how to win with your, with, uh, you know, humility and how to lose with your head held high and, you know, all those kinds of things. And specifically in a career of sales, which is a very competitive in and of itself, uh, I think, you know, for, for those people listening that have played sports, I'm hoping they're all nodding their heads. And, and those that have kids that are young and at those formative years, sports is a great way to get them to learn sort of how to participate in life and in business. And I worked in sales too. I was in sales at, I, at IBM. That was my first job out of college. And you have to be able to fall down and get up. You know, you get rejection. You have to be very resilient to be in sales. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think when you, when you t 
talk about that um, kind of focus and drive, you know, sort of beyond the characteristics. Uh, you know, sometimes people will work work at companies or for managers or even on projects that it's not very exciting to them, you know, and the, and they kind of feel stalls in in what's interesting them and kind of you know what they're doing. And so, what 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 did you find as sort of the the big ahas in micro resilience that you think apply to uh, you know the listeners of what's next, whether they're at the beginning of their career, middle, or you know they're they're leaders of, of big organizations. Well, people look at me and say, you know, you had your leg amputated, you didn't have any money, you you went into skiing. Um, I, I was also an abused child. I mean, you you name it, it's all there. And people say, you, you know, you were so resilient. How can I be more resilient? How can my team bounce back instead of being beaten down? And my kids. And so we, we did micro resilience to really give people tools. And you're asking, you know, what are, what is the secret? What's applicable? And I think it's this idea that. Uh, instead of waiting until vacation or the weekend to try to rejuvenate yourself, is is doing it in small steps along the way. Actually, there's a there, here's a story that that puts it into to perspective. There was a researcher looking at tennis players and why certain tennis players always won, and he was he was taping them, videoing them, looking at them, trying to understand it because. Like if you're watching uh, the U.S. Open, there's so many people playing, but you're only really paying attention to a handful of names that always win. And he was wondering, what puts you in that category? And he couldn't find anything consistent. You know, one person might run faster or have a harder serve, but what's the consistent thing that puts you in that category? And he couldn't find anything until he started looking at what they did between the points. And he told me, he said, Bonnie, everybody thought I was crazy because I was watching video of champions not playing tennis to understand why they won. And it was these pauses in between the volleys. And it said, he said, it jumped out at me. They were doing something very different, the ones at the top versus the others. And he said, as you went down the ranks, you saw less and less of it. And it was these small behaviors between the points where they were recovering their energy focus and drive. So when you think about that, here's people that all have world-class skills. You don't get in the US Open if you don't have world-class skills. But what's giving the top people the edge are these tiny recoveries along the way. And so we were fascinated by that and said, for the rest of us that are pushing ourselves, uh, we are, you know, people are so pushed right now to, to meet deadlines. You, you know, you've got communication coming at you in 20 different technological forms and, you know, we're exhausted. What are those little between the points recoveries that we can do for our brains, for our bodies that can give us that edge. If, if tennis players who are world-class can get an edge by doing little tiny things, can't the rest of us? And we found out, yes, we can. Well, so I wonder, you know, in the work you're doing with, with women in senior positions, do you think that women push harder and don't take enough pauses? Do you think men take more pauses? Do you think it's even at, at the high performance levels? What a great oh. question. A um, couple of things with that. I do think that it is harder for women to take pauses and take care of themselves. Um, I also think that women have to have more of a sense of purpose, that we have to be tied into a sense of purpose. And I would say that's probably true because we have to put up with a lot too, right, <laughs> to do this. And so it's for guys, it's like, hey, I get to be the boss. Isn't this great? For women, I think we have to put up with a lot of guff to get there and to be there. And so it's almost like if we don't have a strong sense of purpose, it's not worth it. It's not worth the hassle. And so I find that uh, powerful women often have a, you, you know, you're a great example, have a strong sense of purpose and mission that keeps you going no matter what. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting on even the pause uh, because there's something in 
uh, the example you just gave about uh, how he was watching high-performing tennis players to learn what did they do different that made them unique. I think there's a lot to be said with taking a pause, not only to uh, you know get into this habit that allows you to bring your best self, but I would also say taking a pause to reflect on what it is that you do and where are those opportunities. So you know, you and I get the you know wonderful opportunity to speak often, and and people who try to get into speaking, if you will, more speaking or speaking for a living or even, you know, giving a keynote, something like that. They're like, how did you do it? And I go, I actually would watch recordings and I still do of myself on stage, but I listen and I don't watch and I watch and I don't listen. So I'm looking for wow. you know, ways I can improve, but it goes back to, you have to be willing to do the work. It would be like you, like watching film of a run that you've done on the ski slopes, right? You're going, well, you know, we did have to watch a lot of video of ourselves racing. Right? Yeah, that's right. And so in business, how do you, although someone isn't recording you in a meeting, right? All the time on stage is a little bit easier, but can you, you know, sort of remove yourself from that in some way to reflect back on how did I handle myself in that meeting? Did I shut someone down in the middle of, you know? So I think that reflection and pause is super powerful, whether it's on film or not. And I think you can do it also by asking for feedback, because what you're saying by video is sort of an objective look at what you're doing. And you can also sometimes get that, even if you watched a video of yourself in a meeting, you might not see something that somebody else would see. But if you really were open and really made them comfortable telling you the uncomfortable thing that you would learn something that's more, even more powerful. No, but you, than video. you know, that requires someone to be confident enough <laughs> to really hear what someone says back to that question, right? Like ask for feedback. Well, number one, that means uh, I'm going to hear the feedback you give Two, that the person who's giving you the feedback feels like if I give them feedback, you know, I'm not going to, especially if it might be someone I work for or I'm a peer, you know what I mean? Where it makes them uncomfortable. So you end up not telling them everything you would have said. Right, right. No. It's not easy to get that kind of feedback. You know, I, I want to tell you a story. This is this is funny about reflecting on what you're doing. This It's just an interesting story that I heard. So a, a senior executive, this is a white male, said that he started noticing what happened when he walked into a room before a meeting. So you know that 10 minutes when everybody's gathering for the meeting, he said, I'm not a real extrovert. So I would just walk in and stand there and different people would come up to me and talk. And he said, I started noticing it was all people who looked like me. So then he said, I started taking that time and going over and talking to somebody who didn't look like me. And I, I did that for a little while. And then he goes, and then I stopped and I went back to what I did before and different people walked up to me. And he said it wasn't just the people he had walked up to before that were maybe a different gender or a different ethnicity, but it was different people that maybe he'd never seen before. But somehow word got out or it's in the ether. I don't know. But it, I think that's fascinating, too, as a form of feedback to just run experiments. Well, I think it says a lot about senior, like I think the, um, and I often say this, I, I, I think that the undercover boss is this wonderful social experiment on so many levels. Like the story to me is kind of secondary, like, you know, what the company is and what they're trying to solve. Cause you know, they're always going to end up in my mind anyway, at the same conclusion, which is almost what you just said, which I don't know why they spend all that time on makeup and hair and all those things <laughs> when literally the front lines has no idea what the executive looks like. You know why? Cause they never go talk to them. <laughs> they're never out of their office. So I'm always like, I don't know why you're spending all this time. I mean, unless you know, you're, unless you're the CEOs we can all name where they're very visible or, you know, the CEO of Costco, who's in a Costco, at least 
you know, every day somewhere in the country. That's different, right? But these CEOs are like, oh, I have to put all this stuff on and so I can go work Undercover. With my yeah. <laughs> undercover, right? But ultimately, they don't know who I am anyway. And so it says a lot about that. Uh, you know, you really need to 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 engage with your people, especially um, not just those that report to you, or you know, further in the organization or in different parts of the organization. And I think, you know, ultimately, um, it, it goes a long way when people feel like they're that you are approachable and that you're going to be open to whatever they have to say. Absolutely. And at all levels. So uh, as you mentioned at the beginning too, we do a women's leadership program and getting that feedback. It's not always easy for women and minorities to get honest feedback. It's not easy for a boss. It's not even easy for a CEO to get honest feedback, but it's not easy for a lot of people. And so creating the conditions where you really can get reflections on yourself is is powerful and it's not easy. Well, so I'm going to I'm going to pivot a little bit because I I think just in in this day and age, you know, one of your books, um, How Great Women Lead: A Mother-Daughter Adventure into the Lives of Women Shaping the World. First of all, I think that's a great title. Second of all, I think it's a great concept and uh, I can't wait to dig into it because um, I have not yet read the book. But I would love to know uh, two things from you. One, um, what was sort of common? I mean, you had people from Condoleezza Rice to Hillary Clinton to Gina Davis. I mean, it was wet across the map, right? That's one question. But the second is, for our male listeners, what do you think they would find the most surprising between a mother-daughter relationship uh, that may help them? Uh, oh, I thought you were going to ask sort of what would men get out of the book. And I and I think that's been interesting because I've had clients where they buy the book for a mixed audience. So like you might yep. say, oh, we have men in the room. We can't buy them this book. And, you know, we would not hesitate to buy a book with full of male leaders for women. So why wouldn't we buy a book full of female leaders for men? So I think it is powerful. And a lot of men have said, oh, this is great because now I, I need to broaden the analogies I use when I'm talking to my team. I'm, you know, I'm using all baseball analogies and I need to be able to think of different analogies. So this is giving me new sets of metaphors. Also, you know, I work with women. I have women above me and beside me. And so men reading wisdom from women leaders is great. And it's still leadership wisdom. So, um, so there's a lot of good reasons for, for men to read it too. Um, I think when I think about what, it, what was in common one of the surprises, and my daughter and I talked about this, she was 17 when the book came out. So it was it was a really interesting journey to take her to meet all these great leaders. I, I wish I could be my daughter and meet all these great leaders when I was 17. <laughs> but um, she, uh, the, the aha was kind of that there wasn't that much in common, that they each really had unique styles. And she was really inspired by that. Because as you know, the younger generation is all about being their unique self and everything is unique. And my cell phone reflects my personality, you know? So for her it made her much more interested in being a leader to see that these women were very unique. They were not, there was no cookie cutter of this is what a great woman leader looks like. They were all very different from each other. And maybe if you were going to say there was something common is that they had found their authentic self and they knew what they could do and knew what they couldn't do. And they were comfortable with that and comfortable finding people that could leverage their, their weaknesses. And so it, it was seeing how different they were that was really powerful. Yeah, and I, I find it fascinating, right? It's it's all about kind of these relationships that shape who you are as leaders going forward. But I think it's just really at the core of, of a lot of the work that you're doing in the Blue Circle Leadership, as well as all the stuff you're doing um, with women in senior positions, right? Just 
the relationships you have throughout your life, both personal and professional, absolutely shape the kind of leader you are, the kind of employee you are, right? The, the kind of team member you are. Uh, they shape the kind of leader you are if you're a good leader. <laughs> if you're trying to be somebody else, then it doesn't, you're, I don't think you're as good a leader. Well, so, so dig more into that. Go for it. There was actually a, a Harvard Business Review study where they were trying to find like the 10 best characteristics of leaders. And that was what they concluded is that there aren't. And it's because of what you just said, which is that your experiences shape who you are. And if you're really using who you are as a leader, then that's going to be unique. So it's it's you letting your experiences shape who you are. If you're trying to imitate some other leader that you know, or or and women really struggle with this because we're often even told you've got to be more like a man. I was working, I was consulting with one company where that was a big issue that a lot of the feedback for the women had been, you need to lead more in a command control style. You need to stop leading in a collaborative style. You you can't do that. And uh, it, it's fascinating because I don't think we're effective when we're 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 trying to imitate somebody else. Well, I think it comes when it, when it's inauthentic, and I think you know there's uh, another friend of mine who I've had on this, uh, Naomi Simpson. She's a shark in Shark Tank on on Shark Tank Australia, and she calls it her strengths and non-strengths. She does not call it her weaknesses. She calls <laughs> Love it, that. Yeah. That's good. You're going to have to borrow it as as everybody I know I does, right? Yeah, strengths and non-strengths. She goes, and I'm just not very empathetic as a leader. It's just it's not my thing. This is her. I'm parroting her. Yeah, yeah. I'm not right. very empathetic as a leader, but I'm really good at like vision, big picture, inspiration, like. But I'm just not good on the day to day people side. So I had to find somebody that could balance out what I'm not, what my non-strengths are. And I was fortunate enough to find somebody whose non-strengths were my strengths. And so there's very little overlap and we do, but the one plus one equals three between us. That's great. But when I tried to be non, you know, when I tried to be pivot into my, you know, non-strengths, it, it failed miserably and it actually it made me less yeah. effective. Yeah. You know, let me give one caution on this, though, too, because you can take anything too far. And so one of the uh, pieces that we read in our women's leadership course is by Herminia Ibarra, who was a Harvard Business School professor. Now she's at INSEAD, Cuban born woman, amazing. But she has a chapter on authenticity in her book, which is um, act like a leader, think like a leader. She has a chapter on authenticity. And she says something so counterintuitive, which is don't let authenticity be a straitjacket. So if you're saying, you know, these are my non-strengths, so I don't do them, that could be a little bit of a straitjacket too, if you say, I'll never do that. So part of what she's saying is sometimes you do have to do things you're not good at to grow, right? And it's kind of common sense, but I think it's just worth saying in the context of authenticity. Authenticity doesn't mean don't grow, right? And you have to be careful if you're saying, well, this is the authentic me. Yeah, sometimes you have to be inauthentic to especially moving from one leadership level to another. And you probably could say that too. Sometimes if you jump, make a big jump in leadership, you feel really unauthentic, right? Yeah. Because you, well, you feel, you feel out of sorts, right? That, oh yeah. And it takes a while to grow into those shoes. So, so I just wanted to caution authenticity is really important, but don't let it be a limiting factor. I, I totally agree. And, and sometimes you are being authentic. You're just uncomfortable because you're not confident yet. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. So yeah. some of it is just to be, you know, being uncomfortable. Um, well, this has been really fantastic, Bonnie. I hope you've enjoyed your time with us today on the What's Next podcast as much as I've enjoyed you being here. But, you know, I'd love to hear, uh, you know, with such an illustrious career and so many things accomplished, you know, what's next for you? Oh, great question. Um, 
We are really expanding our virtual leadership programs. We've been doing it for about four years now, and we've figured out how to get re- really good at it. And it, it's funny. I'm, I'm just going to say I'm really good at it. Um, we have a team of people and it's hard to do virtual training that isn't just about check the box or, you know, learn a new pharmaceutical drug or something like that, but to do leadership development where people have a chance to reflect and grow and work in teams and to do all that virtually. And we've really, uh, honed a process that helps us do that. And so we're, we're applying it to areas like multicultural women's leadership development and now women in tech. We've spent a year doing research on the needs of women in tech. And so being able to provide, and then of, of course, resilience, we, we talked about the resilience work. So being able to apply the system we have for virtual development, not just check the box, um, expanding that. That's what I'm excited about right now is being able to really leverage that because you can uh, bring in audiences that are more disparate. You can weave it into their work instead of pulling them out of their work. Uh, it's 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 just so much more effective. Well, fantastic! I can't wait to see what comes next uh, for you. And you know, thank you for being such an amazing inspiration for for so many of us. I think you know your accomplishments are are just. Um, you know, wonderful to see. And, and for me, it was just a great story to listen to that, you know, there's just no obstacle too great uh, when you set your mind to something. So once again, Bonnie, thank you for being here. Thanks for hosting these conversations. I, I heard you set up the podcast by saying that this is how you think and you meet great people and pick their minds. And so I'm really enjoying listening to the other podcasts too. And it really is a conversation that stimulates you to be creative. So thank you for hosting these conversations. Well, thank you. What a fun conversation with Bonnie St. John. I totally enjoyed that. I think her humor, her her humility and all she's been able to accomplish is just what makes her such a special human being. And I love the fact that she took my bullish embarrassment right from just robots having their own Olympics to having cyborgs be the answer. Uh, I think it's just fantastic way to always look for the good in, in obstacles that have faced her in her life. But I loved the example she gave around how to be better leaders, taking a pause and how it's a little bit more difficult for women and the things that we can do. And as leaders, how do we include those who aren't engaging in conversations with us and make it more opportunistic for them to give their opinion and you to really have these new relationships to change the way you lead those around you, even if they're your peers, even if you're beginning in management, I think there's something to be learned for everybody. So always look for the small, subtle changes you can make in your day-to-day behavior to be better leaders for your for those that work for you, for the people around you, for the companies you work for. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Bonnie St. John. Please subscribe to the What's Next podcast, share, download, and I'll look forward to hearing from you soon. Have a great day. Bye-bye.